0: So we're always looking for the secret. Surely I'm missing something, and if I, somebody could just tell me what the secret is, then all of a sudden it would be easy. And this morning, I'm gonna tell you what the secret is. James Ludeke preached a meeting in Gunner, and I think the title was Old Age Solutions to New Age Problems. And uh, this was one of the most powerful series of lessons I ever heard. He talked about a lot of problems that have always been around but are becoming more prevalent in our society today. He talked about sexual sins and pornography, the evils of social media, peer pressure. Uh, I can't remember what all he talked about. And he had some really powerful lessons. And I asked James, we had breakfast one morning, and I asked him, I said so you're talking about all the things that are wrong and in the fact that we need to change I said but how do you change or what's the what's the secret? And I'm not going to tell you just yet. Like I said we're always looking for the secret, you know, how to get motivated. There's there's lots of motivational books and motivational speakers and motivational uh audios and stuff you can listen to and we're, we're constantly reading you know how many of us have tried to lose weight and maybe we lose weight but then we gain it back Or we try to quit smoking and we try to manage our time better and we're just constantly trying to improve our lives and we hear a lesson about anger and we say I'm going to work on my anger and we say I remember one time I told Angie I said I'm going to be a different man you're going to see a different man and two weeks later six months later two, she didn't see a different man because like Paul talked about, the will was there. I, I wanted to change. I wanted to do better. But I just didn't know how. And I'm not going to talk this morning about how to overcome or how to break a bad habit or how to create good habits because there have been a lot of lessons on that. And there's lots of techniques you can use to, to help you and to motivate you. But I want to get to the, to the root of the matter. So James talked James Ludeke talked about a lot of different sins. And I mean common sins, sins that you have, sins that I have. Not just vague sins out there that somebody else. I mean the things that you and I struggle with, the things you and I've been struggling with for thirty and forty years. And I said, so I don't know if I use the word secret, I said, so what's the solution? And James said, "The solution is to love Jesus." And I thought, that's it. <laughs> but you know, going backing up just a little bit to motivation, all my life, or all my adult life, I have been this close to changing. I've got two bicycles at my house propped up next to a tree, and any day now, I'm going to start riding those bicycles, and I'm going to come home early from work, and I'm not going to be tired, and I'm going to get on those bicycles, and I'm going to start riding. As a matter of fact, just this past week, I think last Sunday, we got home from church, and I was going to go get the air compressor and air up the tires and grease and all these bicycles and get them running and start riding my bicycle. And those bicycles are there where they've been for the last two years still. And you've all, we've all got stories like that, like habits we wanted to overcome. But the problem is, like James says, as far as sin and being a Christian, James says that the solution is to love Jesus. You know, there... I love every one of you. And I would do just almost anything for most of you. <laughs> if, if you called me at 2.30 in the morning and said your car broke down, for a lot of you I would say, have you called Uber? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there is one person in this room that I would give up my life for. And of course, that's my wife. I was talking to my little granddaughter this morning, Adelaide. That's eleven, and she asked what I was going to preach on, and I told her. I said, and I was explaining to her. I said, I said, you know, you love your horse, and you love your dog, and you would do a lot for them. But at the end of the day, if if the dog ran out in front of a car, it, I mean, it's just a dog still. I said, but on the other hand, Adelaide's got two little sisters, uh, Hazel that's two and a half, and Madeline that's, I guess, getting close to a year maybe. I said, if the house was on fire and they were inside and couldn't get out, I said, you would run in even if you might die trying to save their life. And she said, yes. And you I understand that. We would do for love what we would never do for money or, or anything else. There are people that we love. And for some people, the love is so great. You know, uh, you know there's a bad car wreck and the car's on fire. And some a uh, bystander, or, I mean, someone driving by stops, and they run and they, and they rescue the person out of the car. They risk their life. And we, we love stories like that, great love. So there are things that we would do for love that we would never do for money or fame or any other reason. And so when it comes to being a Christian, there are all sorts of tricks and techniques and, and, uh, and not, I, don't, I don't mean these you know gimmicky stuff, but I mean biblical things that we can do, accountability and prayer and, and counseling and stuff. There's a lot of things that we can do. But at the end of the day, if we don't really love Jesus and we don't really understand the love that He had for us, chances are good that we're not going to change. Ten years later, our Christianity is going to be leaning up next to those, on those trees next to my bicycle, if, if the love isn't there. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus was talking to people. And he talked about... Well, as a matter of fact, the the scribes and Pharisees had come to Jesus asking him a question. And Jesus explained... These were religious men. Jesus explained to them... He quoted an Old Testament scripture. He said, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines... Teaching for doctrines... What is that, Mike? Teaching for... Teaching for doctrines and commandments. The commandments of men. Thank you. He said... For with their lips they worship me, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus said there's two kinds of worshipers, the kind that just do it on uh, superficial, shallow kind of worship, but then those that are really sincere, those whose heart is is close to Jesus. So I guess if, if us loving Jesus... Is the secret to change? Then we need to understand the love of Jesus. How much did, did Jesus love us? What what what's the greatest love there is? Is it between a mother and a, and a baby that they they fed and and held for? And of course, I mean, gave birth to a mother and her son or daughter. Is is that the best love? What about the love between a husband and wife. You know, I said, there's one person in this room I would give my life for. Is that the greatest love? What's the greatest love? Jesus said in John 15 verse 13, He says, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. I think I've told the story. I remember in uh, I think junior high is where I heard this story. There, uh, maybe in ancient Greece, there was a man who was sentenced to death, and he asked the authorities if he could go home and uh, say goodbye to his family. And of course, they wouldn't let him go. You know what happens when people get out, you know, they flee. But this man had a friend, and the friend told the authorities, said, I'll stay here, and you let him go see his family, and if he doesn't come back, then I'll die in his place. And the story goes that the authorities were so impressed with the love between these two men that they let both of them go. Greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. You know, I see a lot of... uh, hear people talk a lot and they say, well, the kind of person I am depends on how you are. In other words, if you're nice to me, I'm going to be nice to you. But if you show me your bad side, you're not going to see my good side. And, and that's easy to do. It's a lot easier for us to be nice to people that are nice to us and rude to the people that are rude to us. But I ran across a verse the other day. Jesus was talking about the love of God, And in Luke 6 and verse 35 speaking of God says for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Now it would just according to our thinking be the right thing for God to be nice to you and me because we're here worshiping him and we honor him and trying to serve him. But there's people out there that are cursing his name and denying his existence and trying to get rid of crosses and Bibles and everything and people that just hate God people doing all sorts of perverse things to each other and to children and the Bible says he is kind to the unthankful and evil can you imagine that kind of love Romans uh, chapter 5 In verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly, the people that are the opposite of God. When we were that way, Jesus died for us. He didn't say, tell you what, if you will do these things, then I will die for you. When we were ungodly, uh, God, uh, Jesus died for us. And verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love that Christ has for us and that God has. John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, John writes, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Perpetuation, when there's uh, enmity between two people, maybe one of them's wrong the other, or one of them's guilty of a crime or something. Perpetuation is that that goes between the two people and, and covers it, takes care of it, eases the, you know, reconciles the two people. God sent his son to be our perpetuation. 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love, Because He laid down His life for us. 1 John 4 and verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. 1 John 3 and verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. You know, there's a lot of ways that God could have dealt with our sin He could have sent angels down to die. He could send an angel down every year to die. And then then he could have just said, okay, I'm not mad at you anymore. But he went as far as he could. And he didn't just say, okay, you're saved now, or, or you're clean, or you're not guilty anymore. But he went so far as to call us his children. I admire these people. Sometimes you see, read articles, and uh, naturally you love your own kids. Like we talk about uh, the love for a mother and her children that she gave birth to. And, uh, but you see sometimes these, uh, these couples that have adopted like 10 and 15 kids and, and adopted kids from other countries, and you say, boy, I wish I was like that. Um, so much love they have for other people. That's what God did for us. He, adopt, he adopted all of us into his family. First 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 2, First uh, Peter chapter 1. In verse 18, Peter says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from our aimless conduct, but with the precious blood of Christ as a, as as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In other words, he was perfect. He indeed was ordained before the foundation of the world was manifest in these last times for you. What this means right here is when God first had a plan to create us, before he created the heavens, before he created the earth, Genesis, before Genesis 1 and verse 1, he knew, just like we parents know, that our kids are going to do bad things. At some point, they're going to mess up. But we're going to love them anyway. And God knew before he even created us that there had to be a plan. And that plan was for Jesus to die for us. Now, I don't know, know exactly how Jesus lived here, but since he became a man and felt all the things that we feel... I assume that when he was a baby, he was just like these babies, and when he was a two-year-old, he was just like these two-year-olds are here. But in, in, uh, when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents had traveled, I think, to Jerusalem to worship, and they left, and they thought that Jesus was with other family members. And I think they were three days away when they finally realized that Jesus wasn't with anybody. And so they went back to look for them Jesus is 12 years old. I was talking about my granddaughter. She's 11, getting close to 12. I had breakfast with this morning. They found Jesus in the temple teaching all these religious leaders in the church, or church, in the Jewish religion. And he was only 12 years old. So I'm not sure, and and they asked him, they kind of got on to him and said, what are you doing? Why did you worry us like this? And Jesus asked him, he said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, I don't know exactly when this awareness hit Jesus. I don't know if it hit him at 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or at 12. But by the age of 12, he knew where he, who he was and where he had come from and who his real father was, his heavenly father, not his earthly father, his real father. And so Jesus, before the foundation of the world, and then when he was 12 years old, he knew that he was going to be murdered. At age 12, Jesus knew that in about another 20 years, he was going to be kept up all night and beaten and tortured and spit upon and treated cruelly. Can you imagine your child, no matter what age your child, can you imagine your child having that burden on them? In the year, year uh, 2033, you're going to be murdered. Every day when he got up, he was one day closer. And then he started his ministry at about age 30. Now he was just three years away. Every day. He knew time was running out. And then two, two weeks, And then the night before when he instituted the Lord's Supper. All his life he had that burden hanging on him. And he could have chickened out, but he didn't. He went through with it. That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 kind of sums up all this. I'm gonna Paul is long-winded, so I'm going to start in verse 14 and then skip down. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus. In verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. I honestly think that the best preacher in the world got up here, and no matter how much we studied, you and I in this life can never completely understand the love that Jesus and God have for us. I think once we get to heaven, then we'll fully understand it. I think it, like you said here, it's, it's beyond knowledge. So what, what does that mean to us? How does that motivate us? Well, Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh. James and I were talking. He said, you know, him what the secret was, and he told me, you know, the love of Christ. He said, he said if, if my house was on fire and I was out of town, and you ran in and you saved my family, especially if you died in the fire, it doesn't matter. If you saved my family, for the rest of my life, I would have, feel this huge debt to you and we do if you can look back in your life where someone has helped you in an extremely bad time you still feel that debt and because of the love of Christ we are debtors we have a big debt hanging over our heads Jesus told the story about the two uh, servants and one of them his, uh, his king I think 10,000 talents 10,000 was like you know millions of dollars he could never hope to pay this back he was a debtor to this king We're a debtor to our king. We are debtors. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, Paul says, For you were bought at a price. Someone paid the price for our salvation. He said the result is, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We've got to realize the debt or the, the love that he's got and the debt that we owe and then we've got to try to fulfill that. Matthew chapter 22, someone came to Jesus and he asked him, I get kind of the same question, what's the secret, you know? He said, uh, what are the two greatest commandments? In Matthew chapter 22, in verse um, 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is what's called a perfect lover, complete, when we give Jesus our whole heart. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors to Christ. Now, if you were to, at lunchtime, pick up my Bible, you'd look in here in some places, you'd see where I've written notes. I got a uh, a Bible with, I like to write my Bible. I realize some people don't. But, uh, I got a Bible with wide margins, it's got like one inch margins, so I can write notes. And if you uh, turn to a lot of places, especially the Old Testament, let's see if I can. If you turn to the Old Testament, you find a lot of pages that are just blank. There's no notes. There's nothing highlighted or, or references or anything. Then you start getting over the New Testament, and you find a lot of places where uh, you find some pages that are blank, but you find a lot of pages that have notes. But the one page that's got the most notes is here in Romans. And I realize that, that you can't see. But just about to run out of room, I've even written so many notes that in some places I forgot I'd wrote a note and I wrote the note again. So I go, oh, I've got this verse written in two different places. Do you know where it is in Romans, where I've got all these notes written? Romans chapter twelve. Paul's been talking for 11 chapters now about God's great plan for our salvation. And when he starts getting towards the end of Romans, he kind of starts telling the moral of the story. What's this all been leading up to? And in verse 12, he starts these thoughts, or Romans 12 and verse 1, he starts these thoughts. Based on all these wonderful truths I've taught you, remember we read a lot of those verses. It says, uh, He loved us while we were sinners. He says i beseech you to beseech means just an earnest plea not just a casual ask but please do this I, I beg you please do this he says i beseech you therefore brethren, by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice that's what god expects for us he says i've done all this for you now this is your what you need to do. And when we can make church not just a social event, but when our every thought all week long centers around Christ, when we've got a, a tape measure or, or a yardstick, and it says God's Word on it, and we hear something in the news, and we hold it up to see how this measures to God's Word, and And uh, someone does something, and we see how it measures up to God's word. And there's a a political candidate, and we see how he measures up to God's word. And, And we hold this up to ourselves to see how we measure. When everything all week long is measured by God's word, when our life centers around him, then it becomes easier to change. Someone said the greatest thing that one can do for God is not sacrifice or physical suffering, things that can be seen, but a heart and a mind that are brought under his will and a life lived for him. Someone else said immaturity is wanting to die nobly for a cause. Maturity is living humbly for a cause. There's a verse... Think in Ephesians that talks about teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns. What can we learn from songs? Well, let's look at a few real quick. You know, talked about this love of Christ and, and what we owe him. If you open your eyes, this is all around us in, in, in church, in the Bible, in our songs. Francis Havergill wrote in 1870 says, my heart, my life, my all, I bring to thee my Savior and my King. Elvina Hall wrote in 1865, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Ray Palmer wrote, as thou hast died for me, owe oh me my, oh my love for thee, pure, warm, and changeless be a living fire. John Reeford wrote in 1837, learning all the might that lies in a full self-sacrifice. Isaac Watts wrote in 1707, were the whole realm of nature mine that were present (laughs) far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we understand the love of Christ and we can learn to love him the same way, then we're more motivated to make changes in our life. Years ago, I heard about I didn't read this myself. I heard about a, an article. It said, how to be a great tennis player. And the reason this came up wasn't because of tennis, but because of something else that somebody was trying to get good at. And this applies to everything. And I don't remember all the points, but the way to get to be a great tennis player is, one, play the game, get a good coach, do a lot of practicing, watch other great tennis players, watch the, the Wimbledon tennis matches. Be around other great tennis players. Play other great tennis players. In other words, if you want to be a, a, good tennis, a great tennis player, you need to saturate yourself with tennis. How do we learn about this love for Christ? We need to be around other Christians. We need to be around Christians that are good examples to us. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. We need to come. We need to sing these songs that that I just read about. We need to think about the words of these songs. We need to saturate ourselves in the Bible. We need to get a good coach, someone that we can go and and cry on their shoulder. We say, hey, can you help me out with this? Man, we're just really having a hard time with this. I see it all the time in the church, Christians going to each other. And, And we need to be around Christians. We need to sing songs. And we need to take the Lord's Supper. Now, I know that we don't forget during the week that we're Christians and that Christ died for us. But this is a time when we can come and and just for a few minutes really think about this. Paul talked to the Corinthians uh, because they weren't doing the Lord's Supper correctly. He talked about them not discerning the Lord's body, not really putting any thought into what they were doing. He said, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you. Those that are are not discerning the Lord's body and weak and sickly. Those are going to be the ones, those of us that are having a hard time struggling with sin. Those of us that put our hearts into it and and think about what we're doing. We're going to be strengthened by this. So the way to be a great tennis player, the way to be a great Christian, is to saturate ourselves. And he's given us the word. He's given us fellow Christians. He's adopted us into this good family. We need to surround ourselves with these things. And as we do, then we'll feel ourselves getting stronger and not weaker. So, the secret to being a good Christian is the love of Christ and understanding it and uh, and then in return paying back that debt that, that we owe to him. We always offer a song of invitation and now's a good time to To think about the life that we live. And if you need to make a change in your life, decide to make it now. Don't don't be like my bicycle sitting out there. Make, Make the change today and be that Christian that God wants you to be while we stand and sing.